This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Other Place by Mary Gateskill. I didn't really plan to do it. I just wanted to feel the gun in my pocket and look at the woman and know that I could do it. The story was chosen by Jennifer Egan, whose own stories have been appearing in the magazine since 1989. Her novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the National Book Critics Circle Award. This is Jennifer Egan's second appearance on the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. So welcome back, Jenny. Thank you. The story that you chose, The Other Place, came out in the magazine quite recently in February of 2011. Did you first read it then? Yes, I just read it when The New Yorker arrived, and I was really struck by it. I was frightened as I read and very excited when it finished, so that even though I didn't remember the particulars that well, I was eager to revisit it. What was it that stayed with you? I think the feeling of intense menace, but mixed with a lot of other complicated humanity, specifically parenthood. And I think, too, the feeling of redemption that somehow Mary Gateskill managed to wrest from this very dark and threatening situation and point of view. Had you been reading Mary Gateskill's work at that point? Yes, I've been reading her from the beginning. And one thing I love about her is she's willing to go anywhere and try anything. And I think she's not worried about seeming to be writing about, you know, unsavory or unlikable people. She's able to find humanity everywhere she goes. This is a particularly disturbing story because it's about men who are interested in violence towards women or aroused by violence towards women. Have you seen any other story that tackles a similar subject? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm always interested in stories in which the protagonist is perceived as threatening by others and may actually be. And the first story that leaps to mind is actually Helping by Robert Stone, which Mm -hmm. The New Yorker also published, in which this very unstable narrator begins to seem more and more threatening. And there, there comes a moment where he meets someone who is clearly afraid of him. And I felt implicated in that moment because I was inside the point of view of this threatening person. I felt some of that here, too, even more intensely, because, as you say, this is someone fantasizing about committing violent acts against women. And yet I felt that I was far enough inside his point of view that I could actually see it through his eyes, even as I was also appalled by the thoughts he was having. So it's a very gripping story and the stakes feel quite high. Great. Well, we'll talk a bit more about it after you read it. And now here's Jennifer Egan reading The Other Place by Mary Gateskill. My son, Douglas, loves to play with toy guns. He is 13. He loves video games in which people get killed. He loves violence on TV, especially if it's funny. How did this happen? The way everything does, of course. One thing follows another, naturally. Naturally, he looks like me, shorter than average, with a fine build, hazel eyes, and light brown hair. Like me, he has a speech impediment and a condition called essential tremor that causes involuntary hand movements, which make him look more fragile than he is. He hates reading, but he is bright. He is interested in crows because he heard on a nature show that they are one of the only species that are more intelligent than they need to be to survive. He does beautiful, precise drawings of crows. Mostly, though, he draws pictures of men holding guns, 
or men hanging from nooses, or men cutting up other men with chainsaws. In these pictures, there are no faces, just figures holding chainsaws and figures being cut in two with blood spraying out. My wife, Marla, says that this is fine as long as we balance it out with other things, family dinners, discussions of current events, sports, exposure to art and nature. But I don't know. Douglas and I were sitting together in the living room last week, half-watching TV and checking email, when an advertisement for a movie flashed across the screen. It was called Captivity, and the ad showed a terrified blonde girl in a cage, a tear running down her face. Doug didn't speak or move, but I could feel his fascination, the suddenly deepening quality of it. And I don't doubt that he could feel mine. We sat there and felt it together. And then she was there, the woman in the car, in the room with my son, her black hair, her hard laugh, the wrinkled skin under her hard eyes, the sudden blood filling the white of her blue eye. There was excited music on the TV, and then the ad ended. My son's attention went elsewhere. She lingered. When I was a kid, I liked walking through neighborhoods alone, looking at houses, seeing what people did to make them homes, the gardens, the statuary, the potted plants, the wind chimes. Late at night, if I couldn't sleep, I would sometimes slip out my bedroom window and just spend an hour or so walking around. I loved it, especially in late spring when it was starting to be warm and there were night sounds, crickets, birds, the whirring of bats, the occasional whooshing car, some lonely person's TV. I loved the mysterious darkness of the trees, the way they moved against the sky if there was wind, big and heavy movements, but delicate too, in all the subtle, reactive leaves. In that soft, blurry weather, people slept with their windows open, it was a small town, and they weren't afraid. Some houses, I'm thinking of two in particular, where the Leggies and the Myers lived, had yards that I would actually hang around in at night. Once, when I was sitting on the Leggies' front porch, thinking about stealing a piece of their garden statuary, their cat came and sat with me. I petted him, and when I got up and went for the statuary, he followed me with his tail up. The Leggies' statues were elves, not corny, cute elves, but sinister, wicked-looking elves, and I thought that one would look good in my room, but they were too heavy, so I just moved them around the yard. I did things like that, dumb pranks that could only irritate those who noticed them, rearranging statuary, leaving weird stuff in mailboxes, looking into windows to see where people had dinner or left their personal things, or, in the case of the Leggies, where their daughter, Jenna, slept. She was on the ground floor, her bed so close to the window that I could watch her chest rise and fall the way I watched the grass on their lawn stirring in the wind. The worst thing I did, probably, was put a giant marble in the Myers gas tank, which could have really caused a problem if it had rolled over the gas hole while one of the Myers was driving on the highway, but I guess it never did. Mostly, though, I wasn't interested in causing that kind of problem. I just wanted to sit and watch, to touch other people's things, to drink in their lives. I suspect that it's some version of these impulses that makes me the most successful real estate agent in the Hudson Valley now, 
The ability to know what physical objects and surroundings will most please a person's sense of identity and make him feel at home. I wish that Doug had this sensitivity to the physical world and the ability to drink from it. I've tried different things with him. I used to throw the ball with him out in the yard, but he got tired of that. He hates hiking and likes biking only if he has to get someplace. What's working now a little bit is fishing, fly fishing hip deep in the Hudson, an ideal picture of normal childhood. I believe I had a normal childhood, but you have to go pretty far afield to find something people would call abnormal these days. My parents were divorced, and then my mother had boyfriends, but this was true of about half the kids I knew. She and my father fought in the house when they were together, and they went on fighting on the phone after they separated, loud, screaming fights sometimes. I didn't love it, but I understood it. People fight. I was never afraid that my father was going to hurt her or me. I had nightmares occasionally in which he turned into a murderer and came after me, chasing me, getting closer, until I fell down, unable to make my legs move right. But I've read that this is one of those primitive fears which everybody secretly has. It bears little relation to what actually happens. What actually happened? He forced me to play golf with him for hours when I visited on Saturdays, even though it seemed only to make him miserable. He'd curse himself if he missed a shot, and then that would make him miss another one, and he'd curse himself more. He'd whisper, Oh, God, and wipe his face if anything went wrong, or even if it didn't, as if just being there were an ordeal. And then I had to feel sorry for him. He'd make these noises sometimes, painful grunts when he picked up the sack of clubs, and it put me on edge and even disgusted me. Now, of course, I see it differently. I remembered those Saturdays when I was first teaching Doug how to cast out in the backyard. I wasn't much good myself yet, and I got tangled up in the bushes a couple of times. I could feel the boys flashing impatience. I felt my age, too. Then we went to work disentangling, and he came closer to help me. We linked in concentration, and it occurred to me that the delicacy of the line and the fine movements needed to free it appealed to him the way drawing appealed to him because of their beauty and precision. Besides, he was a natural. When it was his turn to try, he kept his wrist stiff and gave the air a perfect little punch and zip, great cast. The next time he got tangled up, but he was speedy about getting unstuck so that he could do it again. Even when the tremor acted up. Even when I lectured him on the laws of physics. It was a good day. There is one not normal thing you could point to in my childhood, which is that my mother, earlier in her life, before I was born, had occasionally worked as a prostitute. But I don't think that counts because I didn't know about it as a child. I didn't learn about it until six years ago when I was 38 and my mother was sick with a strain of flu that had killed a lot of people, most of them around her age. She was in the hospital and she was feverish and thought she was dying. She held my hand as she told me, her eyes sad half-moons, her lips still full and provocative. She said that she wanted me to know because she thought it might help me to understand some of the terrible things I'd heard my father say to her— things I mostly hadn't even listened to. 
It wasn't anything really bad, she said. I just needed the money sometimes between jobs. It's not like I was a drug addict. It was just hard to make it in Manhattan. I only worked for good escort places. I never had a pimp or went out on the street. I never did anything perverted. I didn't have to. I was beautiful. They'd pay just to be with me. Later, when she didn't die, she was embarrassed that she'd told me. She laughed that raucous laugh of hers and said, Way to go, Marcy. On your deathbed, tell your son you're a whore and then don't die. It's okay, I said. And it was. It frankly was not really even much of a surprise. It was her vanity that disgusted me, the way she undercut the confession with a preening, maudlin joke. I could not respect that even then. I don't think that my mom's confession, or whatever it may have implied, had anything to do with what I think of as it. When I was growing up, there was, after all, no evidence of her past, nothing that could have affected me. But suddenly, when I was about 14, I started getting excited by the thought of girls being hurt or killed. A horror movie would be on TV, a girl in shorts would be running and screaming with some guy chasing her, and to me it was like porn. Even a scene where a sexy girl was getting her legs torn off by a shark, bingo. It was like pushing a button. My mom would be in the kitchen making dinner and talking on the phone, stirring and striding around with the phone tucked between her shoulder and her chin. Outside, cars would go by, or a dog would run across the lawn. My homework would be slowly getting done in my lap while this sexy girl was screaming, God help me, and having her legs torn off and I would go invisibly into an invisible world that I called the other place, where I sometimes passively watched a killer and other times became one. It's true that I started drinking and drugging right about then. All my friends did. My mom tried to lay down the law, but I found ways around her. We'd go into the woods, me and usually Chet Wadizak and Jim Bonham, and we'd smoke weed we'd got from Chet's brother, a local dealer named Dan, and drink cheap wine. We could sometimes get Chet's dad to lend us a gun. In my memory, he had an AK-47, though I don't know how that's possible. And we'd go out to a local junkyard and take turns shooting up toilets, the long tubes of fluorescent lights, whatever was there. Then we'd go to Chet's house, up to his room, where we'd play loud music and tell dumb jokes and watch music videos in which disgusting things happened. Snakes crawled over a little boy's sleeping face, and he woke up being chased by a psychopath in a huge truck. A girl was turned into a pig, and then a cake, and then the lead singer bit off her head. You might think that the videos and the guns were part of it, that they encouraged my violent thoughts. But Chet and Jim were watching and doing the same things, and they were not like me. They said mean things about girls, and they were disrespectful sometimes, but they didn't want to hurt them, not really. They wanted to touch them and be touched by them. They wanted that more than anything. You could hear it in their voices and see it in their eyes, no matter what they said. So I would sit with them and yet be completely apart from them, talking and laughing about normal things in a dark mash of music and snakes and children running from psychos and girls being eaten, images that took me someplace my friends couldn't see, although it was right there in the room with us. It was the same at home. My mother made dinner, talked on the phone, fought with my dad, had guys over— 
Our cat licked itself and ate from its dish. Around us, people cared about one another. Jenna Leggy slept peacefully. But in the other place, sexy girls and sometimes ugly girls or older women ran and screamed for help as an unstoppable, all-powerful killer came closer and closer. There was no school or sports or mom or dad or caring, and it was great. I've told my wife about most of this, the drinking, the drugs, the murder fantasies. She understands because she has her past, too. Extreme sex, vandalizing cars, talking vulnerable girls into getting more drunk than they should on behalf of some guy. There's a picture of her and another girl in bathing suits, the other girl chugging a beer that is being held by a guy so that it goes straight down her throat as her head is tipped way back. Another guy is watching, and my smiling wife is holding the girl's hand. It's a picture that foreshadows some kind of cruelty or misery, or maybe just a funny story to tell about throwing up in the bathroom later. Privately, I see no similarity between it and my death obsession. For my wife, the connection is drugs and alcohol. She believes that we were that way because we were both addicts, expressing our pain and anger through violent fantasies and blind actions. The first time I took Doug out to fish, it was me on the hot golf course all over again. As we walked to the lake in our heavy boots and clothes, I could feel his irritation at the bugs and the brightness, the squalor of nature in his fastidious eyes. I told him that fly fishing was like driving a sports car as opposed to the Subaru of rod and reel. I went on about how anything beautiful had to be conquered. He just turned down his mouth. He got interested, though, in tying on the fly, the simple elegance of the knot, the fish killer, intrigued him. He laid it down the first time, too, placing the back cast perfectly in a space between trees. He gazed at the brown, light-wrinkled water with satisfaction. But when I put my hand on his shoulder, I could feel him inwardly pull away. As I got older, my night walks became rarer, with a different, sadder feeling to them. I would go out when I was not drunk or high, but in a quiet mood, wanting to be somewhere that was neither the normal social world nor the other place. A world where I could sit and feel the power of nature come up through my feet and be near other people without them being near me. Where I could believe in and for a moment possess the goodness of their lives. Jenna Leggy still slept on the ground floor, and sometimes I would look in her window and watch her breathe, and, if I was lucky, see one of her developing breasts swell out of her nightgown. I never thought of killing Jenna. I didn't think about killing anyone I actually knew, not the girls I didn't like at school or the few I had sex with. The first times I had sex, I was so caught up in the feeling of it that I didn't even think about killing. I didn't think about anything at all. But I didn't have sex much. I was small, awkward, too quiet. I had that tremor. My expression must have been strange as I sat in class, feeling hidden in my other place, but outwardly visible to whoever looked, not that many did. Then, one day, I was with Chet's brother Dan on a drug drop. He happened to be giving me a ride because his drop at the local college was on the way to wherever I was going. It was a guy buying, but, when we arrived, a girl opened the door. 
She was pretty, and she knew it, but whatever confidence that knowledge gave her was superficial. We stayed for a while and smoked the product with her and her boyfriend. The girl sat very erect and talked too much, as if she were smart, but there was a question at the end of everything she said. When we left, Dan said, "'That's the kind of lady I'd like to slap in the face.' I asked, "'Why?' But I knew. I don't remember what he said, because it didn't matter. I already knew. And later, instead of making up a girl, I thought of that one. I forgot to mention— one night, when I was outside Jenna's window, she opened her eyes and looked right at me. I was stunned, so stunned that I couldn't move. There was nothing between us but a screen with a hole in it. She looked at me and blinked. I said, hi. I held my breath. I had not spoken to her since third grade. But she just sighed, rolled over, and lay still. I stood there trembling for a long moment. And then, slowly and carefully, I walked through the yard and onto the sidewalk, back to my house. I cut school the next day and the next because I was scared that Jenna had told everybody and that I would be mocked. But eventually it became clear that nobody was saying anything, so I went back. In class, I looked at Jenna cautiously, then gratefully. But she did not return my look. At first, this moved me, made me consider her powerful— I tried insistently to catch her eye to let her know what I felt. Finally, our eyes met, and I realized that she didn't understand why I was looking at her. I realized that although her eyes had been open that night, she had still been asleep. She had looked right at me, but she had not seen me at all. And so, one night, or early morning really, I got out of bed, into my mother's car, and drove to the campus to look for her, the college girl. The campus was in a heavily wooded area bordering a nature preserve. The dorms were widely scattered, though some, resembling mid-sized family homes, were clustered together. The girl lived in one of those, but while I remembered the general location, I couldn't be sure which one it was. I couldn't see into any of the windows, because even the open ones had blinds pulled down. While I was standing indecisively on a paved path between dorms, I saw two guys coming toward me. Quickly, I walked off into a section of trees and underbrush. I moved carefully through the thicket, coming to a wide field that led toward the nature preserve. The darkness deepened as I got further from the dorms. I could feel things coming up from the ground, teeth and claws, eyes, crawling legs and brainless eating mouths. A song played in my head, an enormously popular romantic song about love and death that had supposedly made a bunch of teenagers kill themselves. Kids still listen to that song. I once heard it coming from the computer in our family room. When I went in and looked over Doug's hunched shoulder, I realized that the song was being used as the soundtrack for a graphic video about a little boy in a mask murdering people. It was spellbinding, the yearning, eerie harmony of the song juxtaposed with terrified screaming, I told Doug to turn it off. He looked pissed, but he did it and went slumping out the door. I found it and watched it by myself later. I went back to the campus many times. I went to avoid my mother as much as anything. 
Her new boyfriend was an asshole, and she whined when he was around. When he wasn't around, she whined about him on the phone. Sometimes she called two people in a row to whine about exactly the same things that he'd said or done. Even when I played music loud so I couldn't hear her, I could feel her. When that happened, I'd leave my music on so that she'd think I was still in my room and I'd go to the campus. I'd follow lone female students as closely as I could, and I'd feel the other place running against the membrane of the world, almost touching it. Why does it make sense to put romantic music together with a story about a little boy murdering people? Because it does make sense, only I don't know how. It seems dimly to have to do with justice, with some wrong being avenged, but what? The hurts of childhood? The stupidity of life? The kid doesn't seem to be having fun. Random murder just seems like a job he has to do. But why? Soon enough, I realized that the college campus was the wrong place to think about making it real. It wasn't an environment I could control. There were too many variables. I needed to get the girl someplace private. I needed to have certain things there. I needed to have a gun. I could find a place. There were deserted places. I could get a gun from Chet's house. I knew where his father kept his. But the girl? Then, while I was in the car with my mom one day, we saw a guy hitchhiking. He was middle-aged and fucked up looking, and my mom, we were stopped at a light, remarked that nobody in their right mind would pick him up. Two seconds later, somebody pulled over for him. My mom laughed. I started hitchhiking. Most of the people who picked me up were men, but there were women, too. No one was scared of me. I was almost 18 by then, but I was still small and quiet-looking. Women picked me up because they were concerned about me. I didn't really plan to do it. I just wanted to feel the gun in my pocket and look at the woman and know that I could do it. There was this one, a 30-ish blonde with breasts that I could see through her open coat. But then she said that she was pregnant, and I started thinking about what if I was killing the baby. Doug had a lot of nightmares when he was a baby, by which I mean between the ages of two and four. When he cried out in his sleep, it was usually Marla who went to him. But one night she was sick, and I told her to stay in bed while I went to comfort the boy. He was still crying, Mommy, when I sat on the bed, and I felt his anxiety at seeing me instead of his mother, felt the moment of hesitation in his body, before he came into my arms, vibrating rather than trembling, sweating, and fragrant with emotion. He had dreamed that he was home alone and it was dark, and he was calling for his mother, but she wasn't there. Daddy, Daddy, he wept. There was a sick lady with red eyes, and Mommy wouldn't come. Where is Mommy? That may have been the first time I truly remembered her, the woman in the car. It was so intense a moment that in a bizarre intersection of impossible feelings, I got an erection with my child crying in my arms. But it lasted only a moment. I picked Doug up and carried him into our bedroom so that he could see his mother and nestle against her. I stayed awake nearly all night watching them. The day it happened was a bright day, but windy and cold, and my mom would not shut up. I just wanted to watch a movie, but even with the TV turned up loud, I guess that's why she kept talking, she didn't think I could hear her, I couldn't blot out the sound of her yakking about how ashamed this asshole made her feel.
I whispered, if you're so ashamed, why do you talk about it? She said, it all goes back to being fucking molested. She lowered her voice. The only words I caught were, fucking corny. I went out into the hallway to listen. The worst of it was that he wouldn't look at me, she said. I could almost hear her pacing around, the phone tucked against her shoulder. That's why I fall for these passive-aggressive types who turn me on and then make me feel ashamed. Whoever she was talking to must have said something funny then because she laughed. I left the TV on and walked out. I took the gun, but more for protection against perverts than the other thing. I gave my boy that dream as surely as if I'd handed it to him. But I've given him a lot of other things, too. The first time he caught a fish, he responded to my encouraging words with a bright glance that I will never forget. We let that one go, but only after he had held it in his hands, cold and quick, muscle with eyes and a heart, scales specked with yellow and red, and one tiny orange fin. Then the next one, bigger, leaping to break the rippling murk, I said, don't point the rod at the fish, keep the tip up, keep it up. And he listened to me, and he brought it in. There is a picture of it on the cork board in his room, the fish in the net, the lure bristling in its crude mouth. I have another picture, too, of him smiling triumphantly, holding it in his hands, its shining, still-living body fully extended. She was older than I'd wanted, forty or so, but still good-looking. She had a voice that was strong and lifeless at the same time. She had black hair, and she wore tight black pants. She did not have a wedding ring, which meant that maybe no one would miss her. She picked me up on a lightly traveled 45-mile-an-hour road. She was listening to a talk show on the radio, and she asked if I wanted to hear music instead. I said, no, I liked talk shows. Yeah, she said, why? Because I'm interested in current events. I'm not, she said. I just listen to this shit because the voices relax me. I don't really care what they're talking about. They were talking about a war somewhere. Bombs were exploding in markets where people bought vegetables. Somebody's legs had been blown off. We turned onto a road with a few cars, but none close to us. You don't care? No, why should I? Oh, about this? She paused. There was something about a little boy being rushed to an overcrowded hospital. Yeah, that's bad, but it's not like we can do anything about it. On the radio, foreign people cried. I took the gun out of my pocket. I said, do you have kids? No, she said, why? Take me to Old Post Road. I'm going to the abandoned house there. I'm not going by there, but I can get you pretty close, so why do you care about current events? I didn't give a shit at your age. Take me there, or I'll kill you. She cocked her head and wrinkled her brow as if she were trying to be sure she'd heard right. Then she looked down at the gun and cut her eyes up at me. Quickly, she looked back at the road. The car picked up speed. Take the next right, or you'll die. My voice at that moment came not from me, but from the other place. My whole body felt like an erection. She hit the right turn signal. There was a long moment as we approached the crucial road. The voices on the radio roared ecstatically. She pulled over to the shoulder. What are you doing? She put the car in park. Turn right or you die. 
She unbuckled her seatbelt and turned to face me. I'm ready, she said. She leaned back and gripped the steering wheel with one hand as if to steady herself. With her free hand, she tapped herself between the eyes, bright, hot blue, rimmed with red. Put it here, she said. Go for it. A car went by. Somebody in the passenger seat glanced at us blankly. I don't want to do it here. There's witnesses. You need to take me to the place. What witnesses? That car's not stopping. Nobody's going to stop unless the emergency lights are on, and they're not. Look. But if I shoot you in the head, the blood will spray on the window and somebody could see. It was my own voice again. The power was gone. The people on the radio kept talking. Suddenly, I felt my heart beating. Okay, then do it here. She opened her jacket to show me her chest. Nobody'll hear. When you're done, you can move me to the passenger seat and drive the car wherever. Get into the passenger seat now and I'll do it. She laughed hard. Her eyes were crazy. They were crazy the way an animal can be crazy in a tiny cage. Hell no, I'm not going to your place with you. You do it here, motherfucker. I realized then that her hair was a wig and a cheap one. For some reason, that made her seem even crazier. I held my gun against my body to hide the tremor. Come on, honey, she said. Go for it. Like a star, a red dot appeared in the white of her left eye. The normal place and the other place were turning into the same place, quick but slow, the way a car accident is quick but slow. I stared. The blood spread raggedly across her eye. She shifted her eyes from my face to a spot somewhere outside the car and fixed them there. I fought the urge to turn and see what she was looking at. She shifted her eyes again. She looked me deep in the face. Well, she said, are you going to do it or not? Words appeared in my head like a sign reading, I don't want to. She leaned forward and turned on the emergency lights. Get out of my car, she said quietly. You're wasting my time. As soon as I got out, she hit the gas and burned rubber. I walked into the field next to the road without an idea of where I might go. I realized after she was gone that she might call the police, but I felt in my gut that she would not. In the other place, there are no police, and she was from the other place. Still, as I walked, I took the bullets out of the gun and scattered them, kicking snow over them and stamping it down. I walked a long time, shivering horribly. I came across a drainage pipe and threw the empty gun into it. I thought, I should have gut-shot her, that's what I should have done, and then got her to the abandoned house. I should have gut-shot the bitch. But I knew why I hadn't. She had been shot already from the inside. If she had been somebody different, I might actually have done it. But somehow the wig-haired woman had changed the channel, and I don't even know if she'd meant to. The fly bobbing on the brown, gentle water. The long grasses so green that they cast a fine, bright green on the brown water. The primitive fish mouth straining for water and finding it as my son releases it in the shallows. It's murky, vanishing. The blood bursting in her eye. Poor woman, poor mother. My mother died of colon cancer just nine months ago. 
Shortly after that, it occurred to me that the woman had been wearing that awful wig because she was sick and undergoing chemo, though of course I don't know. The hurts of childhood that must be avenged, so small and so huge. Before I grew up and stopped thinking about her, I thought about that woman a lot, about what would have happened if I'd got her there, to the abandoned house. I don't remember any more the details of these thoughts, only that they were distorted, swollen, blurred, broken face, broken voice, broken body left dying on the floor, watching me go with dimming, despairing eyes. These pictures are faded now and far away, but they can still make me feel something. The second time I put my hand on Doug's shoulder, he didn't move away inside. He was too busy tuning in to the line and the lure. Somewhere in him is the other place. It's quiet now, but I know it's there. I also know that he won't be alone with it. He won't know that I'm there with him, because we will never speak of it. But I will be there. He will not be alone with that. That was The Other Place by Mary Gateskill, which was first published in The New Yorker in 2011 and can be read online at newyorker.com. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So Jenny, as we talked about earlier, Mary is tackling a very difficult question here, and that is, why is it that violence toward women is titillating for some men, and how can you handle it if you happen to be one of those men, and yet also somehow a decent human being? Can those things work together? I don't think I have seen another piece of fiction or nonfiction that quite asks that question. I don't think I have either. I mean, one of the amazing feats of the story is that she somehow manages to connect the excitement of feeling the potential power to control another person's life or end another person's life with the kind of intimate entanglement of, say, parenthood. The first moment when the narrator has a full visceral memory of the woman in the car is a moment when he's actually holding his frightened and crying son, and the, the two are literally coexisting in his mind. And there are two parental relationships in this story. There's our narrator's relationship with his son, and there's his mother's relationship with him. You know, the mother, we have this revelation that she was a prostitute at one point. He says it doesn't have anything to do with his experience because he didn't know about it at the time. But why is it in the story? And why is it that his anger almost always seems to be triggered by his mother? 
I noticed that more as I reread the story a couple of times that I think almost every time he heads out with some notion of at least wanting to experience the fantasies of murder, it's always in response to his frustration with his mother. So I think there's a strong connection there. And in fact, after the scene with the woman in the car, he again makes a connection in wondering whether she was having chemo. And that query comes along in response to his own mother's death. So the two seem to be very much intertwined. So there's a sort of, it's not exactly Oedipal urge here. There's a a matricidal urge here. Yeah. I mean, one of the fascinating questions, and and I think another thing I love about this story is that it, it is fundamentally mysterious. And I think that the most mysterious question that it leaves me with is what exactly happened in the car? How did this encounter with the woman not only not result in violence then, but in some sense kill the urge for it in him? And one possible interpretation is, and there's a lot of evidence for this, actually, that, in fact, he never really wanted to do this. It was a confusion on his own part of fantasy with reality because his humanity is clear all the time in the story. There are just all kinds of little moments in which he chooses not to do bad things and is considerate or concerned about other people. And yet he's clearly also threatening, you know, mm-hmm. watching that little girl through her window. Oh, my God. So is is he just a better guy than he thinks he is? And that becomes clear in the car? Or is it something else? We don't know. Yeah, well, what happens in the car is that things don't go according to plan. And it does seem that his goal is to be in control. His goal is to have the power. And this woman takes that power away from him. Definitely. But I think another strong part of that scene is her desperation. And it seems to me that in seeing that desperation, he can't avoid her humanity. There's some way in which he needs to not be able to perceive the humanity of the other person in order to go through with this fantasy. But he's not very good at not perceiving humanity. He's an incredibly (laughs) perceptive guy who finds, you know, nuances and details everywhere he looks. Not only does he find humanity in this desperate woman, but he finds humanity that reminds him an awful lot of his mom. Right. And yet his mom is the one that he wants to kill. And it's the it's the girl, the college girl who won't stop yapping in the way that his mom does who triggers this in the first place. True, who is pretty but also insecure. There's something about her that allows him not to feel empathy toward her. But then there's another interesting possibility, which is, of course, he could have killed the woman or some woman. I mean, he's a guy with murderous fantasies and he's carrying a gun and he's in a pretty extreme state. And so as a kind of what-if question, you know, had he done that, then he would be the guy who had done that. And who knows whether that might have been the way his whole life would have gone. Mm -hmm. There's a funny way in which, you know, sometimes people almost bumble their way into certain actions, but then those actions are so defining that they become, you know, what that person is. When I did research on kids in Europe who came out of pacifist movements of the 1960s and then turned to violence. And there were a lot of these kids. And I was specifically looking at Germany. In a lot of the accounts, it really felt as if they calcified into violence almost as an accidental result of a first bumbling incident. And then they perceived themselves and were perceived as violent people and in fact became dedicated terrorists. 
I think one of the interesting things here is that the woman in the car doesn't perceive him that way. She's just sort of fed up with him because <laughs> he's, he's, he's pulled out this gun. He's not using it. He's not the kind of guy who's going to use it. And in a way, perhaps she defines him for himself. Maybe so. I mean, it's interesting to wonder. Of course, we don't know what's going on from her side. Maybe she is going through chemo and just thinks, you know what? This is an easier way. Let's just get it over with. Or maybe she's just a smart cookie who, instead of being afraid of the gun, sees, just as you say, that he doesn't have the nerve, that it's never going to happen. And in fact, that by showing fear, she will encourage him. Yeah. She's sort of incredible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the fear that arouses him and he doesn't get it from her. Exactly. You know, I think it's interesting that Mary Gatesgill gives both this narrator and his son these these two sort of minor disabilities, the speech impediment and the hand tremor. And those are two things that sort of imply weakness or that might be judged as weakness and, and cause some discrimination socially. Do you think that those are meant to be a factor in these in these fantasies and these desires that these these two boys feel weak and feel they have to go out of their way to prove that they're not? I don't know, because it feels as if the the fantasies descend over them in ways that are not really logical. You know, his friends don't have it. You know, why does he go to this other place? It feels as if it's it's something in him that isn't necessarily a direct response to anything, but something that's actually innate. And yet, in some sense, you know, I think the story is also about the confusion of fantasy with reality. You know, the tendency to have a certain kind of fantasy in no way necessarily means that one is going to have a certain kind of life as a result. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we, we think of him as a good guy. On the other hand, he's he's a boy who commits all of these sort of petty crimes and pranks, and he puts marbles in a gas tank, which could actually kill people, and, and he peeps in the window. Are we meant to think of him as maybe somewhat immoral and not uh, not actually the person he's he's grown up to be? I mean, to me, he's a pretty scary guy. <laughs> I mean, it was it was I remember, especially when I read the story the first time, feeling actively afraid as I read it. To me, almost the scariest part are the times when he encounters the little girl sleeping in her bed. It literally makes my hair stand on end to read that. <laughs> but I, I, I love that Gateskill is willing to make this happen more than anything I've read. I feel like she created a bridge for me into a point of view from which this sort of behavior actually makes sense. And that is the incredible feat that fiction can perform when it's done at, at the highest level. To say I feel sympathetic to him, maybe that's the wrong word, but I feel lodged in his point of view to such a degree that I'm with him as he performs these actions, even as I'm absolutely terrified by them. Right, right. And when you're in that car, you're in the passenger seat. Totally. There's another sort of strange implication in this story, which is that these urges are somehow genetically coded or, or, you know, inheritable, you know, that he sees his son and he knows his son is feeling the same thing. Now, in a way, we've thought that his case was caused by his mother and her behavior. This man and his wife have not been the kind of parents that his mother was. So why is Doug experiencing these things? How can he possibly dream of the uh, of the woman in the car when he's a toddler. I mean, when he says, I gave him that dream, he seems to almost be talking about something kind of mystical. Yeah. As if his mind had somehow merged with his son's and delivered up this 
this awful nightmare. So it feels like the connection in his mind is more on that level than genetic even. But, you know, in a funny way, especially when he talked about what it felt like to have these urges when he was a teenager and how it made him feel so separate from his friends, even though they were all doing the same things. To me, that kind of isolation felt like something so many teens feel for so many reasons, whether it's that, you know, someone has an eating disorder and that's what they're thinking about or some other kind of addiction. The solitude of a of an unholy preoccupation and what that brings mm-hmm. feels so universal to me that I guess in the end, I felt that the story was more about that than a real study of this particular compulsion and how it might occur or be transmitted to someone else. When I asked Mary about this story at the time and how strange it was to have these fantasies put into the mind of a sort of normal, regular, middle-class guy with a happy marriage and so on. And and she said, are you kidding yourself? <laughs> Basically, look at it. Look at every video game. Look at every, you know, video on YouTube. These things are out there. And the majority of people are experiencing them or feeling them. And, and the difference here is simply the, the urge to take it into the real space of life. True. Although it's interesting because the narrator's sense of isolation with this impulse seems so profound Mm -hmm. that it feels as though the suggestion is that it's a difference of degree between him and the others that becomes almost a difference of kind. Right. When he's watching the movie with his friends and they aren't, he knows they're not feeling what he's feeling. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if, if the story had seemed to be conveying a point of view that, you know, this is how all guys think and, you know, this guy just takes it a step further, I think it would be a much less interesting story. It would feel a little polemical to me. And what I love about this is that it really doesn't feel that way. There are so many different elements coexisting in the story. There are these beautiful moments of quiet interaction with the natural world, with the fishing, Mm -hmm. and and even more when he walks through the neighborhood and his description of the trees and the the first description of his nocturnal walks. So there's this very quiet sort of meditative communion with the natural world And then there are these incredibly tender scenes of him with his son, with whom he's incredibly patient. I mean, the kid Mm -hmm. is obviously difficult, but he's carefully trying to find the right way to reach him. And then there's this kind of drumbeat moving in the other direction of these coalescing impulses and our, my anyway, terror of where they were going to lead. So I, I find it a very delicate and complicated mix of seemingly incompatible elements. And that is another thing that just makes it so great. It's always great when incompatible elements can be made to function so beautifully together. It's just, it's a story doing so much at once. Now you are yourself the mother of teenage sons. One teenager, yes. The other one's on his way. (laughs) A soon-to-be teenager. Yep. (laughs) Does that make you more uncomfortable when you read the story? I'm happy to say that they don't seem to be interested in this kind of stuff at all. I mean, I I feel very lucky that way. I always have. You know, they never were interested in guns. They just didn't – they weren't into it. But I think as a parent, one reason the story is so powerful is because of the – that aching sense of – wanting your children to be happy, you know, knowing that there are things in them that might jeopardize their happiness and wanting so much while one has any kind of control or influence to do everything possible 
to sort of send them into the world safely. I think that that was what really, really resonated with me. And it is partly because I have a teenager who's I can just feel every day, you know, moving toward passing out of my hands in some sense. That was what was so moving about it to me. It, it, on some level, it's about a dad who's really worried that his son will have a quality that he himself has that could prove to be disastrous to himself and others and his patient and passionate efforts to try to shape his son and move him in the right direction while he still can. To the point where he says he won't be alone in that other place. You know, he's willing to go back to that other place. Yeah, although the truth is, you know, there's only so much he'll be able to do. But the story is strongly suggesting that the connection between the two of them is good enough and the family life is good enough that, you know, assuming that this the son has these same fantasies, that he will be even less likely to try to realize them right. than his father was. And even the father never did it. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. My pleasure. This episode of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast has been brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to create your own professional website or online portfolio. It's incredibly easy to use, and every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will look great on every device, every time. It starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. For a free trial and a 10% discount, go to squarespace.com and use offer code FICTION. Jennifer Egan is the author of four novels, including A Visit from the Goon Squad and The Keep. You can hear her read The Reverse Bug by Laurie Siegel and more than 80 other previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.